Once Upon a Time is right now, here on Fable City Radio, with your host, Martha Whitehouse. On tonight's episode, we will explore the extremely popular fairy tale, Sleeping Beauty, sometimes known as Little Briar Rose, or the Sleeping Beauty in the Woods. Sleeping Beauty is a very old tale, and its earliest iteration dates back to the year 1344, where elements of the story appeared as a part of an anonymously written chivalric poem. The earliest modern version was written by Giambattista Basile and published posthumously in 1634. Basile's story is deeply disturbing. It's called Sun, Moon, and Talia. In it, a princess pricks her finger and falls dead, is visited by a king who rapes her, impregnates her, and after her two children are born, they wake her up. Later, she has to marry her rapist. A terrible story that absolutely no one would have thought of as a proper children's story. Sleeping Beauty was obviously greatly altered, rewritten, and published by Charles Perrault in 1697. That's the version of the story we'll be going with tonight. There has been much discussion about the implications of reading fairy tales to children that teach girls to take a passive role. In the case of Sleeping Beauty, a completely unconscious role while waiting for a prince to come and rescue them. But I find that the original story places more emphasis on the role of the wise women in the kingdom and also points to the value of taking action to solve a problem only when the time is right. And when I say original, I mean the Perot version. We won't even talk about that uh, Giambale version. Perot's original version also has its controversial parts. In that version, after the princess is awakened and marries her prince, they go on to have two children and face a horrifying cannibalistic threat from the prince's strange mother. Later editions omitted this unusual ending to Perot's story, and I have followed that convention. It is important to read the original versions of fairy tales and fables rather than the Disney and post-Disney versions because many themes and even the wording of the newer versions of these stories have significantly changed the substance and lessons in them. Even though I occasionally poo-poo the Disneyfication of fairy and folk tales, I must say that the beautiful soundtrack to the Disney movie, which George Bruns uh, adapted from the work of Tchaikovsky, is a wonderful introduction to classical music themes for children, and listening to Mary Costa singing Once Upon a Dream is dreamy. I always hope that people who enjoy the pop versions of these stories will be inspired to seek out the original forms of them. I think that Sleeping Beauty is just as much about the dangers of devaluing wise women and ignoring their gifts as it is about teaching passivity to women. It also teaches a lesson about tackling problems at the right time for maximum success. When you read the original story, these themes come through loud and clear. When I write my version of a fairy tale, I try to honor as much of the original content of the story as possible, while also bringing out what I see as the universal themes in old stories. So sit back, relax, and enjoy Sleeping Beauty. Once upon a time, there lived a much-loved and greatly admired king and queen. They ruled their subjects with kindness and understanding, and the kingdom was peaceful and prosperous. 
the king and queen loved each other very much, and their lives were happy. Happy, that is, with the single exception that they had no child of their own to cherish. Then one day, when the queen was bathing, a frog came out of the water, hopped up to her, and croaked, Your wish will be fulfilled, my queen, and before another year goes by, you will bear the little daughter that you have longed for. The queen was overjoyed, and she rushed inside to share the news with the king, and within a year their beautiful daughter was born in fulfillment of the frog's prophecy. The king was so excited that he ordered that a royal feast be held in honor of his new daughter. They named the princess Rosamund. In addition to the many distinguished guests on the invitation list, the king decided to invite the wise women of his kingdom. There were 13 of them, but as the king wanted them to be served on only the finest golden plates he owned, he only invited 12 of them to match the number of plates. The wise women and all of the other guests arrived. Food was served and everyone dined happily. The atmosphere was pure joy and all of the guests looked at the beautiful new princess with admiration. After dinner, the wise women moved to the front of the banquet hall to bestow their blessings upon little Princess Rosamund. As each woman stood over the bassinet, they spoke their blessings. One granted the princess long life, one beauty, another grace, another fortune, and one virtue, and so on until a total of eleven blessings had been bestowed. Just as the twelfth wise woman was about to speak her blessing, another wise woman, angered by being the only wise woman not invited to the feast, burst into the room and rushed to the bassinet. I will give my blessing now, she cried, and a horrible blessing it will be, actually more of a curse. For when this child, graced with beauty and virtue, reaches the age of seventeen, she will prick her finger upon a spinning wheel and fall down dead. The king and queen shrank back in horror, and the queen snatched up her child and held her to her bosom, crying. She said, My dear child, I can't lose her. The king rushed to attack the thirteenth wise woman, but she had disappeared. Then the twelfth wise woman approached the queen and said, I cannot undo the magic of that evil woman, your highness, but I can soften it. So it is my wish that when your beautiful daughter touches that spindle, she shall not die, but shall instead fall into a sleep from which she shall not wake for a hundred years. The king, who was not at all happy with even this fate befalling his beloved daughter, decided to fight it in any way he could. So he ordered that every spinning wheel in his kingdom be burned at once. A great bonfire was created, and everyone was notified to turn in their spinning wheels. No one objected, because the king and his family were greatly loved. Arrangements were made to bring in thread from distant kingdoms to meet the sewing needs of the king's subjects. Princess Rosamund grew in beauty and grace, just as the good, wise women of the kingdom had ordained. Her seventeenth birthday approached without incident, and the entire kingdom was prepared to celebrate the day and the lifting of the curse that the jealous wise woman had laid upon her. The day dawned bright and clear, and the king and queen embraced the princess in relief. We are going to ride out this day, 
the king told his daughter, for there are many more arrangements to make for the party tonight, and we want to see to them properly. Amuse yourself any way you like until we return, dear child. The king and queen went riding out of the castle. Princess Rosamond played with all of her favorite baubles and treasures and took a walk around the beautiful walled garden that surrounded the castle, but she grew bored. She felt an odd restlessness that had never troubled her before, and she wondered what her life would be like now that she had attained full womanhood. She went back into the castle, walking its length and breadth, and finally deciding to climb the long, winding staircase that led to a small attic room that the king and queen used for storage. As she walked the many steps, she counted them, and she fell into a trance as the stairway climbed ever higher. Finally, she was at the door. There was a rusty lock fitted with an even rustier key. Rosamond turned the key and pushed the door open. It gave a loud groan as if it hadn't been opened in a thousand years. And Princess Rosamond stepped through the door and into a dark room lit by only a single shaft of sunlight that came in through a hole in the roof. Glowing in that shaft of sunlight was a spinning wheel with an old woman sitting at it spinning thread. It was the 13th wise woman. Rosamond had never seen such a thing. She watched fascinated as the wheel spun and thread filled a bobbin. What are you doing? And what is that thing spinning so quickly? She asked. I am spinning flax, said the old woman. And what you are looking at is the spindle. You may touch it if you like, child. Rosamond reached for the spindle, and the moment it pricked her finger, she fell into a deep sleep. The evil wise woman chuckled to herself, <laughs> disappearing into a mist, for she thought the princess lay dead at her feet. When the king and queen returned to the castle and their daughter didn't greet them in her usual fashion, they instigated a frantic search for her. They found her at last and carried her to her bed. Immediately after they returned to their thrones, they fell into the same deep sleep as their daughter. The courtiers and advisors fell asleep. The dogs and cats that roamed the grounds of the castle fell asleep where they stood. In the royal kitchens, the cook, who was about to box the kitchen boy on his ears for dropping a plate, fell asleep with his arm raised, and the goose girl plucking a goose on her lap fell asleep mid-pluck. The meat on a spit in the fireplace stopped cooking, and the flames froze in place. The birds sitting on the castle walls tucked their heads under their wings and fell asleep. Every subject and everything that was part of the king's domain slumbered peacefully. Immediately, a large hedge of thorns began to grow around the palace. The thorns were razor sharp, and the hedges multiplied and quickly formed an impenetrable wall that no living thing could cross. As the years passed, Rumors spread about the doomed kingdom, the palace buried beneath the thorns, and the beautiful slumbering princess who lived there. Over the years, 
many brave men conceived of elaborate plans to rescue the princess and her people, and one by one they fought to make their way through the thorn hedge. But each one became hopelessly entangled, pierced mortally by the thorns, and they died horrible, slow, painful deaths. Finally, 100 years to the day after the princess's fateful encounter with the spinning wheel, a young prince of great character and bravery told his father of his plan to make an assault upon the enchanted palace to free the princess. His father begged him not to go. You have heard about all of the young men who have lost their lives on those deadly thorns, my son. Why do you go to join them? The prince said simply, I feel that it is my time, father. Resolute, he strapped on his sword, mounted his horse, and headed for the cursed palace. The prince approached the hedge, ready to fight his way through, but the moment he touched his sword to the first thorn, the whole hedge shrank back into the earth, and his path was clear. He made his way inside the palace walls, gaping in awe at the people, animals, and even insects he found sleeping there. He passed through a great hall and saw the king and queen sleeping on their thrones. The tears that they shed after finding their stricken daughter were frozen on their faces. The prince saw the king's servants frozen in sleep in the kitchen and all around the palace. He climbed the grand staircase that led to the sleeping chambers and looked into each one until he found the princess. She looked so beautiful that he thought his heart might break and unable to stop himself, he knelt by her side and placed a gentle kiss upon her cold lips. All at once, she sat up, amazed at the handsome prince before her, and as she woke, so did everyone else in the kingdom. The king and queen rubbed their eyes, the meat on the spit in the kitchen fire started roasting again, and the flames therein danced merrily. The head chef finished swatting the kitchen boy who yelled, Ow! and the girl plucking the goose calmly continued her work. The birds on the castle walls woke up and flew chirping gaily into the fields where everything was in bloom. The prince and princess descended to the throne room and the king and queen embraced their beloved child and wept with joy before they could even dry the tears of sorrow from a hundred years earlier. They were happy to give permission for the prince to marry the princess, and after coming to a happy arrangement with the prince's family, everyone in the two kingdoms lived happily ever after. The End I hope you enjoyed tonight's Sleeping Beauty. But as I begin to think about talking about this, I have to ask, is, is it even okay to talk about a fairy tale with such a dark, hateful origin story? I thought about that question before choosing to work on this episode, but I decided that the origins of a lot of these stories are quite disturbing. Um, but as they've evolved into more acceptable forms, I feel okay about working with them. It is the nature of fairy and folktales to change along with the changes in the society of people sharing the stories. 
Fairy tales have always been altered and recreated to make them compatible with new audiences, with different ideas and experiences than the original storytellers. Which is one reason why it's kind of ridiculous to complain about changes and updates to the traditional stories. These stories are always changing, and it's been that way since the beginning of recorded oral and then written storytelling. People right now are complaining about a lack of authenticity and respect for the original Little Mermaid story, but the animated Disney movie never honored the original story, just as Charles Perrault decided with this story to eliminate the rape from his version of Sleeping Beauty, deciding it wasn't right for his audience. That's all I'm going to say about the kind of culture wars raging over that. That isn't what this show is really about. But I do want to talk about some other elements of the story. Um, One thing that I found interesting about the story is, first, the pronouncements of the frog in the story. Um, Frogs show up a lot in fairy tales. And um, in this one, the frog predicts the birth of the princess. Uh, It's kind of good news from an unlikely source. Frogs are often, in these stories, harbingers of magical things. And in ancient Greece, frogs represented life and fertility. So having one predict a pregnancy in a fairy tale isn't too big a stretch. I also like the part of the story that deals with hospitality and the dangers of not sharing hospitality to everyone in a target group. The king wants all the wise women in the kingdom to attend the banquet for the princess, but he decides to exclude one of them because he doesn't have enough fancy dishes, which brings us to the anger of the scorned wise woman. First, note that the women offering gifts to the princess in Perot's story are not called fairies, as they are in the Disney version. They are referred to as wise women, and the implication is that the women have some magical powers. If the king knew this, why would he snub one of them? Considering this, the decision, the consequences of his decision aren't surprising at all. In the Disney version of the story, the uninvited fairy is obviously evil, and she wasn't invited to the party for that very reason. But in the Perot story, there's no suggestion that the 13th wise woman is really bad or evil until she is angered by being excluded from the festivities. Finally, the last lesson I'd probably talk about in Sleeping Beauty is the glaring difference between the prince's experience when he goes to rescue the sleeping princess from the experiences of all the other men who die trying to fight their way through the thorn forest. In the Disney movie, the prince battles his way through the impenetrable thorns and has to fight off a dragon version of the evil fairy before he can rescue the princess. In Perot's version, the hedge simply disappears when the prince approaches it at exactly the right time. He is aware of the story of the Sleeping Kingdom, and he knows the predicted hundred years have passed. It may seem a bit anticlimactic, but I think that that part of the story provides a good example of the principle that timing is everything. Sometimes in life, when we make an attempt to do something, it's just as important when we make the attempt as how we make the attempt. And I think the prince knows that, and that's why he ends up with the happy ending. That's all I have for now. So remember, next time you throw a party, don't exclude somebody who would rightfully think they should be invited, or they may put a curse on your firstborn child. Well, let's hope that doesn't happen. Take care until the next time we meet in Fable City Radio.